Welcome to the December 2018 edition of the RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Now, most of our episodes include a news brief, but this time we're featuring interviews about two, yes, two fantastic orthopedic rehab papers. And well, these interviews, fresh from Sweden and Canada, take up the whole show, as well they should. So let's get right to it. Joining me now on the rehab cast is Usa Dettering. Dr. Dettering uh, is in Stockholm, Sweden, where she is an associate professor and senior lecturer at the Karolinska Institute. She's also managing director of the Allied Health Professional Service at Karolinska University Hospital. Uh, Dr. Dettering has been uh, publishing in, in the field of uh, orthopedics and rehabilitation for, for some time and has uh, made uh, quite a few contributions, as, as we'll discuss. The paper today is the effects of neck-specific training versus prescribed physical activity on pain and disability in patients with cervical radiculopathy. It's a randomized controlled trial, and it appears in the December 2018 issue of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Dettering, thanks for joining us today on the RehabCast. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me here. Yeah, it's uh, it's an important paper, a massively underserved, perhaps, a patient population. It, it is it, it is one for which there is an ongoing debate about the value of, of surgery versus physical treatment modalities, uh, and uh, this is seems to be a, a never-ending battle. Um, now, you and this paper aren't comparing surgery uh, versus non-surgery, but two different non-surgical uh, approaches, uh, both of which have, have perhaps shown, shown value in, in smaller papers. Um, now, neck-specific training is kind of the more test intervention here, although uh, you're, you're comparing that with, uh, with asking people to do prescribed physical therapy, which is something that's grown in popularity as well, uh, you know, so kind of two uh, approaches in, in physical therapy that, that are gaining in popularity. Uh, and interestingly, both populations are being offered some, uh, some basic kind of psychoeducational cognitive behavioral uh, approaches. Um, tell me about kind of the, let's start with square one about kind of the context of, of cervical radiculopathy care today. Um, I, I mentioned that there is this debate if you could tell me, maybe summarize for me what uh, uh, what, what is kind of the, the treatment paradigm that, that perhaps you uh, advocate uh, at Karolinska uh, and that, uh, that your colleagues look at in terms of making that decision of, of surgery or not, um, and, and is, this, is this particular study that you're doing, is it grounded in, in trying to test some of the physical therapy approaches that y'all are actively adopting in your clinical populations there? Thank you, that's a very good question. Uh, to start with, uh, what originated this study was that we were working in the neurosurgery department as physiotherapists, and uh, we realized that prior to surgery, uh, we could do more for the, for the patients. Uh, so we started uh, together with the neurosurgeons to to evaluate the patients very carefully before surgery. And when we realized during those evaluations that many of the patients who were referred for surgery, they didn't have had a proper training before surgery, uh, then we realized that we needed to study if 
there was a specific physiotherapy training that could help the patients prior to surgery. And when we did this, we found that many of the patients, they even they didn't even need it to have surgery because they got better. So that was the reason for doing this randomized controlled trial. We needed to test this scientifically, whether we could, we could prevent surgery or if we could make the patient so much better that they were in a better shape for the surgery. So interestingly enough, uh, this study shows that both uh, physical activity that was prescribed and, and next specific training uh, could be in favor of helping the patients to recover without surgery. And uh, prescribed physical therapy, that's not simply just telling the patient, hey, you ought to exercise. It, it is a little bit more involved than that. It certainly does involve the power of the clinician, that initial assessment, kind of uh, trying to do some motivational interviewing, as I understand, and get this person engaged. But uh, but certainly, as, as utilized in this study, there is some uh, some ongoing potential for contact that the patient can initiate, as I understand it, and, the, and, the, and they are checked in on and, and so forth. Can you tell me about that, that prescribed physical therapy approach? Yeah, that's true. You start with talking to the patient with a motivation, motivational interview, uh, and then you talk to the patient about their goals, what they would want to achieve, and then uh, you set up a, a proper training program uh, for the patient and they could then either go to a physiotherapist for that training program or they could do it uh, at home or whatever and then you connect with the patient regularly to check how they are uh, but not as regular as every week you do that uh, more seldom than you do uh, a physical therapy treatment where you see a patient uh, all the time uh, so it's a kind of behavioral part uh, of prescribing uh, the physical activity that also is a part of the intervention. And uh, I, I suppose that's one initial question about kind of the, the study design. If the motivation is initially to prove or not whether next specific training, which, which uh, let's, let's do discuss that next in terms of what that, what that all involves, but but just to finish this particular question, if you're if you're looking at that as maybe the main novel intervention, you are comparing it against something active. This other group is getting the cognitive behavioral motivational interviewing, uh, and they are being asked to follow this prescribed uh, exercise paradigm, though not on the neck. Um, but what what was your thought originally in the, in the study design as to as to why do that comparison? Is it more about the ethics of hoping this patient gets some some appropriate treatment that they deserve to be or need to be treated feasibly to be able to track somebody for two years with cervical radiculopathy symptoms, that type of thing. What what are, what was the the rationale for that decision? Yeah. Uh, to start with, uh, the next specific training uh, that has shown to be in favor for patients with whiplash associated disorders and for patients with mechanical neck disorders. And therefore, we thought it would be very interesting to see if the next specific training would be in favor for these patients with cervical radiculopathy. Uh, the patients with cervical radiculopathy, they have, they have much pain, 
originating from the neck and it goes down through the arm to the hands they could sometimes be weak and they have a lot of pain and if we could find something that would help these patients uh, better than what we usually do then we think that we could we could do a lot for both the patients and society and, and the whole treatment paradigm for the for the patients what we have seen for patients with whiplash associated disorders uh, was that uh, neck specific training was in favor uh, for those patients even though they were uh, chronic whiplash associated disorders patients and that that also was very interesting for us when we have this kind of severe whiplash patients uh, and we could see that neck specific training was a big help and to see if we also could get the same kind of results for the uh, for the cervical radiculopathy that would be very interesting to test now this neck specific training protocol uh, I'm, I'm looking at the PDF of that now, which, which has uh, yeah. photographs of, uh, of a person going through the, the, the different regimens, and uh, they, all, they all look like things that uh, um, I, I suppose we've, we've, uh, we've seen before, but in terms of this uh, p particular program, um, how long has this been in place, um, and uh, what other populations has it been studied in? Uh, we have done this in... in uh, uh, a couple of studies here in Sweden. Uh, we have done it for whiplash-associated disorders and we have also used a similar program for patients who have had surgery uh, for their rehabilitation after surgery and now also for the patients who are not, who haven't had surgery yet. Uh, so these are the kind of patients that we have tried this program for here in Sweden. Uh, and what we see, we, we have the program on for three months uh, and then we follow the patients carefully for up until two years to see whether they um, whether they stay uh, in the in the same uh, in the same clinical clinical outcome uh, as they do directly after the program, uh, but also to see if there if there's something that um, that we see after a long time uh, that it stays on. And uh, interestingly, we see that that the patients they are they are still uh, in a better shape even after two years, which is a pretty long period to follow to follow patients. It is, and, and definitely. So this is this is part of the 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 routine and and the treatment that y'all are delivering in Sweden for cervical radiculopathy uh, is this this next specific training. Uh, it's it's definitely moved out of the the research it is part of your your routine clinical practice yes we try now since we have we have seen in these randomized controlled trials we have seen that next specific training is working and then we are we are trying to get it out uh, for more patients uh, but what also would be interesting is that if we could find a way uh, for the patients, if they, they don't go to a physiotherapist who is that skilled in neck specific training, could we find other ways uh, of, of helping the patients to get this kind of training? That is kind of the next part of how do we get it out the, to, the, to the broad, to the, broad uh, uh, the, the broader population of the patients.
Now, one thing that I was fascinated by in, in delivering the interventions, there are quite a lot of, of players involved in the, the study here. It says that there's a total of, of 61 different primary care physiotherapists at, at 36 different locations. What was the, the necessity to involve that many different treatment locations that have to do with the, the way the Karolinska Institute is, uh, is organized? Uh, that, that sounds like uh, rather daunting numbers uh, to get everybody on the same page with, with any study to me. Yes, that's true. Uh, and that is because we have done this, uh, this study in the real clinical setting that we have here in Sweden. Uh, and we thought that if we were doing the study in a very close setting, uh, then it would only be transferable to, the, to a close setting. So what we did was that we talked to a lot of physiotherapists all around Stockholm area, both to get the patients to be close to where they live or where they work, to make it easier for them to go to the physiotherapist, but also to, to make it more real. And therefore we thought that it would be more, more like the, the way we are working and, and easier to adopt. And we also could see that this, this way of working, it actually works in the clinical practice that we have here. Yeah, I think that's enviable. I think the uh, from from the American perspective, it, it's it's uh, it's rare to be able to see a study involve that that many different sites and so forth with with folks having kind of more of a homogenous practice. Now, in terms of uh, allocating the 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 interventions, there were there were seventy two folks uh, in each arm uh, as to the next specific training uh, or the prescribed physical therapy. There there was more attrition. Uh, in the prescribed physical therapy, which certainly makes sense, down to 32 at the end of uh, two years uh, versus 41 in the next specific training, you know, which, which makes sense, again, given that they, they weren't as closely involved with the treatment team uh, to be expected. But um, over the course of, uh, uh, of that time, uh, it, it is fascinating to see that that these two groups are not statistically different in terms of uh, the amount of improvement, both improving. Um, but I suppose that finding is, uh, is surprising to you. I gather in doing this study, you would have expected that the next specific training would have won out. Yes, you are right. We expected the next specific training to be the, the, the superior one, but now it wasn't. And that's, that was a surprise. You are right. So um, in terms of kind of uh, processing what, uh, what the, the cause of this the surprise must be initially now, again, like I was alluding to earlier, um, prescribed physical therapy itself is somewhat active. Um, that, that initial uh, treatment session and meeting with the therapist and, and getting the, the protocol and asking to be diligently following that, um, you know, is, is asking the patient to do something. And they are getting that same level of of the motivational interviewing and so forth. So that that is treatment, but again, it, it's not specifically focused on, on the neck and um, that is so interesting. So it seems somewhat disconnected a little bit from the pathophysiology that we would expect. I mean, with the neck specific exercise training, the, the general concept is that we're trying to stabilize those, those neck muscles and, uh, uh, and decrease the use of accessory muscles and so forth. And, and kind of limit some of the, uh, the, the tension and, and, and so forth and abnormal muscle movement patterns that might be exacerbating uh, some of that uh, radiculopathy pain. 
um, to see both both of those uh, kind of um, coming out about the same is fascinating uh, at the same time, and hopefully I'm not rambling on here uh, too much, but at the same time that uh, that that group that's doing the prescribed physical activity not on the neck, we do know that everything is is connected to a certain extent and and general uh, health uh, status in terms of overall physical activity is going to kind of perhaps uh, decrease in inflammatory markers in the body and that type of thing, improve circulation to injured areas, even if you're not exercising the same region of the body and, and that type of thing. Uh, I suppose in testing that, that hypothesis, you would want some measure of people's diligence in following the prescribed physical therapy. Were you able to parse out uh, any differences amongst maybe a subpopulation of people who weren't following up as, as well or didn't or were you tracking uh, enough to be able to say uh, were people following uh, the the prescribed physical therapy program? Uh, yes, yes, we we were tracking how much they followed the programs. All patients they filled out diaries, so we know how much they followed the programs, and both uh, both groups followed the program. What what is interesting in what you're saying is that. There are lots of these um, uh, these parts that could contribute to to a patient recovering, but also I, I think that it might also be that we have the behavioral approach uh, in both of the intervention arms, and that that is also something that in other studies has proven to be quite strong uh, for people to to recover because if you if you uh, develop a, a, a movement disorder due to that to, to fear of movement, uh, then you're also disabled because of that. So I think there there is a complexity in this, and the way we designed the study, we were not able to track all these kind of different courses uh, the way we did it because then we needed to have much more patients involved. Uh, and it, always, when you do these clinical kind of studies, uh, it takes time because you need to recruit a lot of patients. And the way we did it this time, we are not able to scientifically answer all these kind of underlying questions that could be of interest. So that, that is the next part that we could do. Now, you did uh, say that the Nexific training resulted in more immediate benefits, more short-term benefits, and prescribed physical therapy was, uh, you know, won out in the long term as well. It didn't win out, but, but it also proved effective in the long term. Any thoughts as to, as to why neck training might result in people feeling better sooner? Yes, but we think, we think that we, we could change the recruitment pattern of how you recruit your muscles. We have seen in another study when we have done electromyography on the neck muscles for neck specific training and uh, physical activity, prescribed physical activity, then we have seen that there is a difference in how you activate your muscles uh, after you have had neck specific training or prescribed physical activity in favor of the neck specific training. So you do something with the neck specific training. And maybe we need to, to collect more data to be able to, to show it also in this patient population. I, I think for, for myself, I need some type of uh, nexific training that tells me to stop looking down at my cell phone. 
Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think we all could need that. So, uh, so you alluded to what to what your next uh, next work is going to be. Is that already underway in this area? Yes. What what we are thinking of is how could we better learn on the patients that we fail on? Uh, because today, when you are doing a randomized controlled trial, then you recruit patients, quite specific patients. But still, you have lots of patients that doesn't fit in in a randomized controlled trial. And also, you have patients who don't get better. And if we could find a way on uh, on doing research on those kind of patients, maybe in a single case studies or whatever, just just to be able to track how could we really improve for those patients who don't get better from this. So that's that's the kind of the failure part of of. Or what you do clinically what, what could we do there i agree with you wholeheartedly and i think that's that's a theme that we're starting to see in a lot of uh, rehabilitation research it, it looks like i mean the holy grail is i mean we we know that for so many different patient populations the the bulk are fortunately getting better the the question is always what to do uh about that that minority that that are not and and seeing more studies that are that are focused on those folks and, and what can treat that that tougher subset of patients that that is the holy grail. I think that's very, I think that's very important for us. We need to we need to improve also in how we see in how we see these these studies to be able to really to really help the, the patient and and also what's beneficial for for each each single person. Definitely. Well, uh, Dr. Dettering, I really appreciate your time today helping uh, explicate uh, some of your study here, although it's perfectly explanatory in the, in the journal as well, but, uh, uh, but we're thrilled to offer this audio format for people to hear a little bit more about, about the papers and, and the background. Uh, again, I, I appreciate your time and speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me here. Thanks a lot. Joining us now on the RehabCast is Dr. Carlo Amendalia. Dr. Amedalia is assistant professor at the Institute for Health Policy and Evaluation at the Department of Surgery at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's also an associate scientist for the Department of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital and director of the Chiropractic Spine Clinic and Spinal Stenosis Program at the Rebecca McDonald Center for Arthritis and Autoimmune Diseases. Dr. Amedalia, thanks for joining us today on the RehabCast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So uh, you've published uh, a fascinating trial here, uh, a comparative um, randomized trial looking at um, comprehensive non-surgical treatment versus self-directed care to improve walking ability in lumbar spinal stenosis. And uh, as you outline in the paper, um, that, that concept, doing therapy to uh, actually improve walking ability in this degenerative condition uh, is something that uh, would be amazing if it could be proven, and, and it looks like you and your team have, have done so. Most, most trials, as, as I gather, are not successful on that front. That's correct. Uh, we've done three systematic reviews uh, and published those reviews and came up with the conclusion that we don't know what works in, from a non-operative perspective um, because of low-quality evidence and because of conflicting evidence. Um, and so this was the um, background on why we decided to do a trial uh, that tried to answer that question on whether or not a non-operative approach using 
um, a multimodal approach uh, would be effective in improving walking ability, which is the dominant uh, limitation in these patients who have spinal stenosis. Now, uh, the, the key to this trial is your, your uh, crafting of this kind of comprehensive yet conservative, it's non-surgical uh, training program. But let's talk about first what's been done previously. So you, I gather, have been involved in some of those uh, prior uh, reviews and are certainly uh, familiar with the prior literature. What is it that people have been looking at in terms of other rehabilitation interventions that so far has not proven effective? Well, one thing would be um, for claudication, neurogenic claudication, epidural injections are commonly used. Uh, in fact, 25% of all injections are done for spinal stenosis, and it's quite controversial on whether or not they actually work. Uh, so that's uh, one area of non-operative treatment. The other is, you know, medications, variety of medications are being used like uh, pregabalin and gabapentin. And there's more and more growing evidence that those medications don't work for back pain or back-related uh, leg symptoms. Um, and then other treatments like physical therapy, manual therapy, uh, exercise, uh, there, there's been a number of trials looking at a variety of different combinations of therapy and exercise um, and manual therapy, and the results have been either uh, short-term benefit only um, uh, or no, no difference uh, than, uh, than uh, uh, no treatment or, or usual care. And so, again, we're left with a question mark on what really works for this patient population from a non-operative perspective. And uh, so some of those things, it sounds like perhaps they've been looked at kind of more individually and so forth. And you're, you and your team have put together, again, kind of more of a, more of a comprehensive uh, approach that you're delivering over this uh, six-week uh, period. Um, and, and comparing that to folks who have uh, a so-called self-directed uh, program but, but aren't getting as much hands-on intervention with the chiropractors there in your program. Well, let's start out describing what this intervention is. Uh, can you kind of walk us through the primary elements of the, of the six-week course? Yeah, so the, the comprehensive program, it's a twice a week for six weeks. It's a training program. We try to train our patients how to self-manage. So patients get one-on-one instructions on various exercises and self-management strategies. These are home-based exercises. There's manual therapy that's aimed at improving intersegmental flexion because we know when patients have their spine in a flexed position that they have increased size of the cross-sectional area of the lumbar spine and reduced symptoms. So we train our patients to get into a pelvic tilt position when they stand and they walk because that's when they have their symptoms. But their back needs to be flexible enough. Their core muscles need to be strong enough in order them to reposition their spine when standing and walking. So much of what we do from a manual therapy perspective is try to facilitate that maneuver uh, that they'll ultimately do on their own. Uh, there's also neural mobilization techniques to help to get movement in uh, the, neuro, uh, the neural elements. Sometimes there's scar tissue, adhesive, adhesive tissue that uh, becomes involved in, the, in these cases in neural mobilization that we do in the clinic, but then ultimately the patients can do that on their own is another, um, another uh, aspect. All patients are recommended to go on a stationary bike to improve overall fitness, but also improve strength in their lower extremities because these patients maintain a sedentary lifestyle which further debilitates their their overall, overall overall conditioning, but also their strength in their legs. So we get them on a stationary bike 
in most patients who have neurogenic claudication, when they're on a stationary bike, leaning forward, they have little or no symptoms. So that's a good way of getting them back into shape. Um, and then finally, there's a, um, a cognitive behavioral approach that we use, changing attitudes and beliefs, uh, mitigating expectations. It's not about eliminating symptoms or pain. It's about getting them back walking again. It's about uh, uh, pain avoidance of behavior that we try to get them to do activities even with some pain. So it's that educational and changing attitudes and beliefs. Hopefully that patients develop self-confidence and the ability to manage this condition on their own. And we demonstrate that through them using a pedometer that they use and measure their walking ability on a weekly basis. And this helps them give them feedback. And because most of the patients are getting better, they see this um, pedometer objectively showing improvement that that provides them with self-confidence and gives them this self-esteem to, to continue on with their exercises. So it's multimodal, looking at the, the psychological aspect of it, which is common in, in patients who have chronic related uh, problems. It's the physical it's the, and it's also the functional. So it's le leading, uh, trying to deliver a, a multimodal approach dealing with the multiple facets around this type of condition, which is quite complex. It's not just the physical, it's not just the psychosocial, it's all those things and you need to have an intervention that deals with all of them. So, uh, so it's a comprehensive program, a lot of variables, uh, which is gonna make it a little bit difficult to, to compare perhaps versus versus anything. Um, now you chose to, to compare it against a, a so-called self-directed training program. You describe it to me, as I, as I understand it, uh, they aren't getting ongoing treatment uh, with a chiropractor, but are getting some education asked to follow a particular program. Right, right, so we had quite a struggle trying to come up with what we thought would be the best uh, control group. Uh, being a clinician, I see these patients coming into the clinic and they're quite, uh, you know, debilitated and they're, they're, they feel hopeless. They don't know what to do. And so one of the, one of the options was just doing, uh, you know, no treatment or usual care, but we felt uh, kind of difficult. We felt uncomfortable with doing that because these patients were coming to us seeking care and seeking, doing, seeking something to help them. And so we decided rather than, than, than give them no treatment or just have them continue on doing what they're doing, which wasn't, wasn't really helping them, uh, we decided to come up with a, a control group that provided them with something. And the something was that they came in one, for one visit with a chiropractor who introduced them to the program. And the program was, uh, was all the exercises that we would give the patients on the comprehensive, all the self-management strategies as well, all the education around uh, you know, fear avoidance behavior, continue to walk, use a stationary bike. So they got all that educational information uh, used via a booklet and a video. And they also got a pedometer, which also showed them, you know, how to uh, how to do the walking and get some feedback. So they had the similar program, but not the one-on-one -on -one instruction, not the manual therapy, and not the cognitive behavioral approach. So we tried to provide them with a similar, we called it, you know, boot camp light, if you will, because they didn't get any instructions per se, other than the one instruction, but they still got the nuts and bolts around the exercise and self-management. They use the pedometer and, and also to guide them through the progress, the program in the, in the manual had them, had all the instructions on how to, how to do all the exercises and what frequency, what intensity. So they got something. Uh, but that's why we we did see some good improvement in their in their condition, but not as good as the comprehensive. And then, kind of getting to to the results, which again are, are quite impressive. Uh, we're getting some some improvement uh, in both groups, but significantly more with your comprehensive program. And I think it's also kind of fascinating that it seems to, as you describe, match up with the natural history a little bit. Um, uh, most or certainly many uh, lumbar spinal stenosis patients can can expect uh, issues with 
back and leg pain to gradually Im- improve uh, over time, uh, but but not walking ability so much. That unfortunately tends to gradually worsen, but you saw that improving uh, with your interventions, mm-hmm. particularly so with, with your comprehensive. Uh, right. Uh, so I, I'm sure you're pleased to see that, but, but tell me a little bit about why you think that's occurring. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think what uh, is happening with these patients is, is, is this uh, feedback loop that they're getting using the pedometer and, uh, and seeing the benefits. So at eight weeks, uh, the mean improvement was half a kilometer, which is which quite which is quite a large improvement. And I think what's happened with these patients, uh, particularly the ones that got the one-on-one instruction, um, there was a lot of um, positive feedback about continuing these exercises on a regular basis because this is going to have you know the strength and the conditioning doesn't happen in weeks; it happens in months, and that you need to k- keep going. So it's a lot of sort of positive reinforcement about the importance of continuing with their exercises. That, in combination with the uh, with the uh, with a pedometer, provided them the feedback that they're getting in addition to. Uh, because we couldn't tell them the results of their walk test, but they were seeing that on their own with the pedometer, uh, and that, and then also the changing attitudes and beliefs around, you know, that you know you could walk with some pain; it's not going to harm you. And they were getting that kind of instructions on a regular basis when they were in there. So that was changing attitudes and beliefs. And I think that the the long term benefit we believe was a result of changing behaviors, because most things in healthcare, when you change behaviors, you see better outcomes. And I think changing the behaviors about regular exercise, about doing the exercises correctly, which we ensured they were doing that in the comprehensive group, not so sure they were doing it in the the self-directed group, uh, but the positive reinforcement to continue on, continue measuring your success. Um, And I think that this this particular uh, reinforcement uh, actually changed behaviors on getting to do regular exercises. And so as they got stronger and fitter, uh, they were able to walk further and further. And that, I believe, uh, would would explain why we got a great improvement in the walking. And then the other thing, too, is that we really focused a lot on our interventions on the walking aspect. So it was really ingrained in their brains that we're here to get them to improve their walking, not get rid of the pain, not uh, get rid of their numbness. It's the goal is their walking. So the discussion, the talk, the conversation was really around improving walking because that's in previous studies showed that it was very resistant to change over time. And so we focus on that aspect and that when we did our qualitative study, which we also published, that walking was the main issue from a functional perspective that they were concerned most about. So that's why we use that as as, as our main outcome, because that's what what mattered most to our patients. And that's what we focused on on the intervention. In terms of. Again, comparing these two groups, I suppose um, you know you've outlined the prior the prior literature, a lot of a lot of failed trials. I, I, I gather you you agree that or you believe that this integrative model everything supports each other. But a natural question would be to still want to break it down. What is it about this so-called comprehensive approach that's the most important? You know, is it yeah. the kind of behavioral talking to the patient? Do we need to compare it against another group? Uh, where some people are getting that, but not everything else, and so yeah. forth. And I mean, what what are your views about the philosophy of trying to trying to break it apart and understand the relative yeah. weight of what what is the difference here? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really hard. On the one hand, we wanted to simulate the realities of our practice, and the realities of our practice in- integrated all those elements. Um, and now, when we're trying to sort of tease out which one is the most important, it's kind of difficult. Uh, I would say one thing. I think that uh, uh, that for different individuals, the various components may be more important than 
others. So I think it made it, it I think, you know, it's like a shotgun approach. And, and for some people, the manual therapy was very useful for their back pain and their pain because we know manual therapy does improve pain. And then for others that who were more more in terms of the, the, the cognitive issues around fear and then, then the cognitive behavioral might have been more important. So on the one aspect, maybe the various components impacted individuals differently. And because you gave them all, then the patients had the advantage of, of finding which one was most useful to them. That's the one thing. But if I had to say what was probably the most important, I would think that the, the cognitive behavioral, the support, the positive reinforcement, because more and more of the literature is showing us how important these contextual factors are really are. For example, we just finished another study, which we haven't published yet, looking at patient expectations. And we saw that in our study here, when we break down break it down, that those patients that felt that they were not going to get better prior to starting, they didn't get better. Where those that thought this program sound pretty good, and then they think that it's going to help them, they actually got better. So patient expectations were important, and the literature suggested that's that, that also the case in surgery. Prior expectations also impact surgical outcomes. And so we saw in our study, even though we haven't published yet, we saw the same thing. So when we can start molding or changing those expectations, uh, um, impacting the, uh, the, the attitudes and the fear uh, uh, and getting them to get into a routine of exercise through changing behaviors, I think that may have, if I had to guess of one thing, I would think that that may be the one thing that likely gave us the big change and the sustainable benefit was this kind of cognitive behavioral repetition, positive reinforcement. Yes, you're doing well. Look at your numbers. Uh, this is going to do well. Your numbers are going to go. We want to continue getting even better and better with you. And that kind of dialogue, that kind of positive reinforcement. Again, the literature suggests this is important in back pain. Um, and so we tried to, to use it in this particular population. And we're not sure, given that we can't tease it out. But if you're asking my opinion, then that's what I think is probably one of the most important elements in the in the comprehensive program. What, what can you tell me about cost of a program like this? I mean, it seems to me like it, it should be relatively efficient. You're talking about 15 to 30 minutes of clinician time twice a week for, for six weeks. Is that right? That's right. So in Canadian dollars, it works out to about $1,100 for the six-week program. Well, that yeah, that, that's pretty impressive for something that's going to potentially end up uh, improving walking ability lasting out to a year. Yeah, that lasting out, that's pretty good. Because remember, the intervention stopped, right? So it didn't carry on. Uh, it was six weeks plus one booster at four uh, four weeks later, and then we didn't see the patient uh, again, uh, uh, other than them coming back for doing their evaluation. So, so uh, for for I think from a cost perspective. Uh, $1,100 is not a lot of money when you see the benefits that lasted up to 12 months. And this is another important element that we think that uh, that the benefits may have even, we have another study ongoing now that shows some benefit up to 3.5 years, which indicates that that, that there's some, some durability beyond the one year. But the other thing too is that uh, over a quarter of our patients uh, at 12 months were able to walk more than 30 minutes. Uh, which was not recorded in our in our uh, evaluation because the test, the self-paced walk test, goes up to 30 minutes and then you stop the clock and you don't measure any further distance. Well, over a quarter of our patients were now able to walk beyond the 30-minute mark. So, so these numbers that I gave you and in the in the paper are, are a gross underestimation of the true improvement in their walking ability. So that's which makes this the study even more impressive than the actual numbers because uh, a, a large percentage of patients are now would no longer be eligible to participate because now they can walk beyond the 30-minute mark. Uh, so I think from a 
cost perspective versus of, of a benefit, I think uh, that the benefit uh, is, uh, is, is, is quite large and the, and the cost is relatively small, $1,100 uh, for a program that's going to give you at least up to one year benefit, uh, then I don't think it's all that expensive. That's great. Well, it's always pleasing to see, to, you know, you know, negative trials are important as well, um, but it's, it is always uh, fun and nice to see somebody coming up with a particular program that, that appears to work and is cost uh, efficient. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly more, more work can be done on this. This does appear to be a very high quality trial and is, again, built upon something you're already putting into clinical practice there, I gather, and a single yes. patient benefit mm-hmm. from, and now you're gathering good, solid evidence for it. So, um, uh, you know, I'm glad that the, the word is getting out there about it through the December issue of, uh, of the archives. Uh, and sounds like you've got quite a lot of related work uh, uh, underway and perhaps in press already. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've got, uh, we, uh, we got another paper that just got accepted for publication, and that's looking at the long-term uh, outcomes of this patient population uh, that uh, received the comprehensive program, and the benefits seem uh, to, uh, to be sustained even at 3.5 years on average, except for back pain. So back pain, there seem to be some increasing in their back pain, but in terms of the self-report pain and quality of life and the and the zeroclodication scales, both symptoms and pain scales, they were maintained even at point three and a half years. So we're seeing some really impressive long-term benefit as well. Uh, and that's one study that we're doing now. Another study that we want to do is try to see whether or not we can get the same benefits by training uh community uh, chiropractors or physical therapists in the community training them um, in the real world setting and then and then then assessing their patients um, and seeing how well they do and that's another one is doing group classes as opposed to doing one-on-one and made even more cost effective by having groups of four five six or up to ten uh, in pure lead and get, getting all the education and getting all that um, all the exercise instructions from a peer and seeing whether or not that might help bring the same cost, bring the cost down even further um, and and uh, and seeing whether or not we can get the same benefit. Excellent, because as you mentioned, yeah, it's such it's such a vast patient population. Uh, quite a lot of people uh, uh, need this this service. Mm-hmm. And, um, so uh, in terms of, you know, if an enterprising health system is, is listening out there and is interested in what they're hearing and wants to start to adapt uh, some of this program, is that uh, something that um, uh, have you got materials on your on your website for it, or how are you disseminating in that regard? So what we do is we're, we're, we have some workshops that we've been doing. We're doing one at the University of Pittsburgh um, in February. We're doing one in Harrisburg um, in March in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, and so we're training practitioners who are interested in learning how to do this program in their offices. And we also have online um, online um, courses and uh, workbooks and videos that patients can learn it on to do it on their own as well. We provide them that option and it's all on our website. It's a non-for-profit website. It's called spinemobility.com, spinemobilityoneword.com. And again, it's a non-for-profit. All proceeds go back to support our research and we provide these educational materials for both clinicians and patients for them to learn programs uh, through the website or through uh, hard copies uh, that they can, they can order online. Fantastic. Well, I encourage our listeners to go check that out. Well, Dr. Uh, Amendalia, thank you very much for joining us today on the RehabCast. Uh, it was an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this December 2018 edition of the RehabCast. 
turn to the pages of this month's archives of PMNR for much more important work in our field. Unfortunately, we just can't feature quite all of it in this medium. Also, see you at ACRM Chicago 2019, where I've got something very special planned. You're going to hear more about it in a later edition of this very podcast.